0: Father, there is no salvation if if you, Father, Son, Spirit, are not our salvation. And this is because we are utterly, utterly in need of saving. There is no salvation in us. Born spiritually dead, we cannot make ourselves alive. Born as rebels in your world under Adam, we cannot pay for the injustice of our offense of sin with a thousand lifetimes In hell, which is why it is for eternity. We are born into a world filled with gifts. Father, your gifts, your glory and evidence of your power and your generosity surround us. And yet we are unthankful and we we grumble and we claim entitlements that are not ours. And so you give us over to what we want in so much of life and we have gotten what we want and it has not gone well. And the worst we have known in this life is as heaven compared to the judgment that should await us. But, Father, we sing this morning, the Lord is our salvation. I think of one brother who came to me recently on a Sunday and said, this morning I woke up and I was really ready to go to church again. And, Father, we are really ready to be here again. Even if we don't feel like it, we are exactly where we need to be to hear exactly what we must hear. It is good to be at church again. It is good to be under your word. It is good to be told what we'll be told this morning. And it is so sweet what we will hear by the time that we are done. It's in Christ's name we pray these things. Amen. You may be seated. Open with me in your copy of scripture or the copy right in front of you to the book of Genesis, the book of Genesis We'll be in chapter three this morning, but we'll begin with the last verse, verse 24. There's a house just down the street uh, next to a cemetery, where that little Wells Fargo uh, stop is, across from Arby's. Lots of small cemeteries mark our town. They're usually fenced off, and the house next to this cemetery, I, I noticed this week has a, a tall fence between it and the cemetery i was just noticing the fence and i noticed the fence was uh, had slats in it it seemed it seemed a little awkwardly positioned and then it occurred to me i wouldn't want to stare at a cemetery all day every day either i just want to have my toast some mornings well this morning we're going to if you will peek over the fence we're going to we're going to stare we're going to stare at the cemetery this isn't fun But this is so right. We think of how chapter 1 ended with God resting on the seventh day. Things were by his own evaluation. Very good. And the creation was very blessed. Well, in Genesis chapter 2, it ended on a similar note. Genesis chapter 2 zoomed in on the sixth day in which God blessed us. Where we saw every tree pleasing to the eye and good for food for our enjoyment. And that day ended on a good note, even if on an awkward note. And the men and woman were naked and not ashamed. We begin this morning with the end of the third day. Read with me Genesis chapter 3, verse 24. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let me read that ending again. He drove out the man. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim. And a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Something's happened. Between the end of chapter Two and now the end of chapter three, a flaming sword that turns every way I can 't help but think of the one of the many scenes in the Star Wars series. it 's a terrifying thing. In this case, it 's not for entertainment, it 's for defense, and it 's not a sword to defend us it 's a sword to defend against us. Not for our protection, but to keep us from the very presence of God. How, friends, did we get here? How did we get here? That's the question everyone's asking. It's the question that every human religion asks and seeks to answer. And whether a human calls their system of belief a religion or not, every human being has a system of explaining these kinds of basic questions. It's the question Israel was asking when they received this in the wilderness. Slavery in Egypt for 400 years, hard labor. Their babies were thrown in the Nile and they wandered under the hot sun. They would for 40 years after Egypt. And every person from that generation would die save three. And it's the question you and I ask In so many various ways, what's wrong with us and how did we get here? We don't even all agree, humans don't, on what it is that's wrong with us. Sometimes one person will think that something's wrong with us and the next person, based on their system of religion, thinks that's what's great about the world and humans. But we all agree that humanity's in a bad place. How did we get here? Or how about putting it this way? What is the irreducible problem under all of the trouble that we experience inside of us and outside of us? What's the, what's the basic irreducible first problem that explains all the rest? Why are we outside the garden, to use the language of this passage? Who's screwed up? Who is patient zero? You remember the Ebola crisis uh, a number of years ago. In December of 15, we read this in the CNN about the patient zero who they discovered. Emil had a fever, black stool, and started vomiting. Four days later, he was dead. Within a month, so were his young sister, his mother, and his grandmother. The mother suffered bleeding symptoms and died on December 13th, about seven days later. Then the toddler's three-year-old sister died on the 29th and symptoms including fever, vomiting, and other things. And the grandmother passed away on January 1st. Emil's father is left with only fond memories from when before Ebola ripped apart his life. Before my children died, he says, they love to play with a ball. My wife liked to carry the baby on, on her back. Only memories now of his Former happier life. The illness spread outside their village after several people attended the grandmother's funeral, and now, at the time of this article, the death toll skyrocketed to almost five thousand worldwide, including the United States. And they didn't quite figure out precisely what it was that started this. But but there is a patient zero who contracted it at first, and from whom it it spread. Well, what is the what is the irreducible problem? What is the first? instance of the human problem? What explains all of the other problems that we, we have? Is there an explanation? Well, in this chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, the third chapter of our Bible, God has wasted no time to get to an answer for us. He will find out how we got here. We'll find out what's wrong with us. We'll even get the name of patient zero. It came through something that we handled. But more fundamentally, it came through something, as we'll see, that we miss. Handled? The answer to this question is no surprise. It is not good news, but it makes the good news that I pray you know good. It's an ancient answer and it is immediately relevant. It's an answer that will make every Sunday morning, every sermon faithfully expounding the Bible, however plain and straightforward and undecorated, it will make every straightforward truth from Scripture immediately, potently, beautifully, urgent, and relevant for you. And it is because we forget what's in this chapter that sometimes the rest of the Bible seems, although it may be a screw-up time and hard to understand parts of our Bible, but that makes its overall message and even our gatherings boring. It is this problem it is understanding the cancer patient understanding what it is that's really at stake what it is they're really up against that makes the doctor's words for hearing that makes them relevant the answer will do more than tell us how we got here before we're done but it'll also tell us something of where of where we're going i'm excited for this sermon even if this sermon is as you will if you will peeking over The fence. So let's pink over the fence. How, friends, did we, how did we get here? First, we got here through an intoxicating program. An intoxicating program. And what I mean by that will will make sense as this, this account unfolds. There's something that we are swept into, a program that we love, an offer that is enticing. And here's how it how it works. God spoke the world into existence, right? He spoke a word of blessing. He spoke a word of command. Adam spoke in chapter 2, rejoicing over his wife and now another speaker. Chapter 3, verse 1, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And what will he say? To whom will he say it? Well, he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? His first words, the serpent's first words, about God's first words to us. His first words are a question, but it's not a a curious question. It's a crafty question. He's going somewhere with it. He begins with a suggestion, a suggestion. Let's imagine God's word is a a line. Here's the line of God's word. We can call it the line of truth. We don't bend it, twist it, turn it upside down, add to it, take away from it. Imagine with me the word of God as a line. What does the serpent do with the line? Well, let's remember what God said in Genesis chapter 2, because he's quoting God after all, right? So let's listen to what God has said. The Lord God took the man, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, he took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat for In the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. Now let's hear again, the serpent's words. We're going to study the conversation here as we go. Chapter 3, verse 1, he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? What has he just done with the line of scripture? On the one hand, he's changed it. He's kind of added to it any tree, but ultimately he subtracts because he offers this. Did God actually say he's seeking to cause doubt in the mind of the hearer? And in doing so, he questions the goodness of God. The the actually is kind of a scoffing way to put it. It's an eye roll of a question. How does the woman respond? Something is surely off. Will she scoff with him, be swept into his spirit? Or will she remember the generosity of God, his his particular command? Well, let's see. Verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, or neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Well, at first here, we're relieved. That's a pretty good response on the face of it, and perhaps given the range of responses. But on closer investigation, there are some subtle and threatening problems. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, she says. Did God say, neither shall you touch it? Now he said, "But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat." Well, what did she do with the line of scripture? Well, she responded to the serpent's suggestion with a revision. Perhaps she did this out of a desire to be safe. Can't we all understand understand that? But while it wouldn't be wrong to stay away from the tree, she put words in the mouth of God. And in so doing, she answered the serpent's rebellion with her own form of human religion. A perennial and historic and ever-present human problem. A problem we find with the Pharisees who contradict the word of God by adding their own human commandments that are intended to surround the commandment of God as a kind of protection. We see it in our own hearts, a desire to add to the Word of God in order to protect us from its violation, a perennial human problem. She overcorrected God's Word. She overcorrected, and in so doing... Here's what's so easy to do in our over-corrections. In so doing, she overlooked God's heart. Notice what she doesn't say. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Well, to a point of fact, she is correct. She was allowed to eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But it actually doesn't sound anything like that beautiful fruit full and generous picture that we, that we saw last week when God planted in the garden of Eden in the east and there he put the man he'd formed and out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree every tree that's pleasant to sight and good for food and he commanded the man saying you may surely eat of every tree in the garden the generosity of of God's heart on display in the particular words that he's using to permit humankind to his lavish gifts. How generous is our God and how lavish his blessing and creation. Yet she has in her perhaps well-meaning overcorrection also overlooked God's heart. His generosity And there's something else that she has overlooked. She's overlooked as judgment. This is subtle too. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree, she says, that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. That it was more in fact than that. You shall surely die, he said. She doesn't feel the force of what's at stake. Exact quotes are not always necessary. Uh, it was another passage I might think we were over reading, but in this context, this is a conversation about what God did and what He did not say. And the serpent is playing very carefully around the line of God's word, and she is not playing as carefully as she must. What began with a suggestion has led to a subtle revision the serpent has drawn her into a discussion and now she's entangled he's in a position now for the drop kick verse 4 but the serpent said to the woman you will not surely die oh he didn't start there temptation may not start there but here is where it leads what god said isn't true it's led now to an outright negation. God's word is wrong. And what has he done with the line? He's just taken the eraser and blanked it out. It doesn't matter what God has said. And he quotes God's word better than she does in his own manipulation of it. And that day you will not surely die. He hasn't misheard the emphasis of God in, in his word. But he plays it against her contradicting it now directly. He's erased the line, but that wasn't enough to hold her. Now God needs to become the bad guy. And this is what makes it intoxicating. He's going to offer to her, offer to her the throne of God, the place of God, the wisdom of God, the glory of God. Verse five, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and that you will be like God. God, knowing good and evil. The the prospect of, of being in the position of God, of being like him, this held out as some kind of beautiful, lovely, precious future. And in this place, he makes a claim that has the power to change the whole course of her life. This portrayal of the future, this promise of position, to redirect her desires and her hopes and her dreams. You can be like God. He's stingy, by the way. He is envious, by the way. He's self-protective. That's why he gave you the command. He's deceitful. He doesn't want you to take his place. He's holding you down. He won't even actually do what he says. An intoxicating thought that you and I can be like God. She believes him and she makes the case to herself. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, then we'll proceed in a moment, but we'll hit pause right there. And here is a rationalization that that we're good at ourselves. Of course, as we read this story, what we're doing is we're reading the anatomy, the inner processes of of temptation and sin. When we put God's face out of view, and he has disappeared from view in her imagination here, and when we turn down the volume and then click off to his voice, all kinds of arguments gain a certain appeal. Here's a physical rationale from health. This will ultimately be be good for me. It's practical. An aesthetic rationale from, from beauty. It's a delight. It's a delight to the eyes. And here's an intellectual rationale from wisdom. It's good to make, to make one wise. And all of this leads now to action. And the action comes swiftly. Verse 6, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Took, ate, gave, ate, and it's done. And there was preparation beforehand, and temptation, and revision, and then down, and a rationalization, and now an action. And there's Adam. Where was he the whole time, by the way? The one to whom God spoke the command, the one to whom God had given the woman that he rejoiced over and sang over, and the one to whom God had given all the creatures and the creation, including this, this serpent who is to take orders from the man. He was right there. He was right there the whole time. And later in Scripture, as Adam was created first and, and given the word of God, it will pin the whole trouble of, of uh, the human experience inside and out on this one man. This, friends, is the story of, of sin's entrance into the world now what we have in the rest of our verses is an explanation of the effects of sin we've seen its entrance and now we see its effects we've seen an intoxicating program of which we love to play we're addicted to it ourselves born in an adam and now we find a terrifying outcome They've taken the word of the serpent, and who was right? Well, now we'll see. What will God do? Would he strike them dead in a moment? He is sovereign over all, after all. The the stars obey him, but the the human beings made in his image that the stars were hung to provide light for, they they don't obey him. Even before God does anything, the effects of sin are already evident. Look at verse 7. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They are already hiding from from one another. And it's not that they could not see their own bodies earlier. It's that prior to sin, all natural was most natural. There was no internal conflict of spirit. There was no reason to hide from one another that is now expressed in a physical covering a barrier, a wall, if you will, between the two. There's disorder in every human relationship. More on that shortly. But there's disorder in another, even more fundamental relationship, and that's our relationship with God. Verse eight, just watch this. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Hardly a a sadder picture than this. God gave the trees, friends, for our enjoyment. And Adam and the woman used them for their concealment. The gift of God. Now a barricade from God. God has not changed one bit. It is us. It's a sad picture. It is also terrifying. It's the sound. Even in the Hebrew, the language that is used here is not a gentle breeze in the woods, but a rustling of the forest as God comes. Like a father up the stairs, I have memories of this. As you hide and wait. God speaks again. This time... It's not a word of blessing. It is a word of interrogation. An interrogation, kindly offered with every occasion for confession. A series of questions. We begin in verse 9. The Lord God called to the man, and he said to him, Where are you? And Adam replies. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He actually doesn't say where he is. He doesn't say, I'm over here. Perhaps he knows, God knows. He explains why he's hiding. He's already explaining, but he actually doesn't actually explain why he's he's hiding. Another question, verse 11, he says, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? Again, God knows. He's giving Adam another opportunity to come clean. And now he asks specifically, What did you do with my word? You'll remember the command I gave you. Have you done something with the command? What have you done with the line? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you? And the man said... The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave fruit of the tree, and I ate. Ooh, there's a familiar ring to that. <laughs> uh, Christy and I have had whole evening conversations that were basically an extended version of this. And I'll say that it was the man speaking in those cases, usually. Um, lots of blowing smoke and f- fog into the room. If I can hide my sin in some corner of the conversation and maybe come around to admit it, the woman whom you gave to be with me, he takes partial blame. He admits it. He says the words, I ate. God will move on after he hears this. He says, I ate, but only after, only taking blame after at least enough blame has been placed squarely on the woman who, of course, gave him the fruit. Couldn't do anything about that. And to God who gave him the woman, it's like, ooh, that's a good angle. God's going to take that one. He's supposed to understand. With a signed confession. Now, a question for the woman. Notice that the serpent came first to the woman, but God goes first to the man. Verse 13. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The same strategy. The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. That's a little more straightforward. Now God speaks again. The first human couple will learn whose word is true and whose word, while it seemed true, is false. He spoke a word of blessing and now we have a word of cursing. First, verse 14, a word of curse to the serpent a curse that matches the serpent's domain. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel." It occurs to me, I don't think there's a creature with its mouth closer to the ground. Even insects have little legs to prop themselves up. Even the millipede has little legs to keep itself above the ground. The serpent's head is in the dust. And then to the woman, a curse that matches her domain. Verse 16, the woman said, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. And your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now finally, to the man, a curse that matches his domain. And to Adam he said, verse 17, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. And by the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of the dust you were taken. And out of the dust you shall, to the dust you shall return. We had poetry in chapter 1. We were made in the image of God. In the image of God he created them men. Male and female, he created them. In the second chapter, we had more poetry as Adam sang over his wife, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. And now here in the third chapter, we have more more poetry. But it's in a minor. It's dissonant, severe judgments. It ends in the dust. They're fitting Judgments. They correspond to the domain of the, the recipient. They correspond to the commission that God gave, his first commission to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that will happen. But through pain and childbearing and problems in marriage, your desire will be for your husband. He will rule over you. As the Bible unfolds, we find that there is something to God's creation order. He has made Adam first, and there is a proper biblical, beautiful ordering within the home and within the church of complementarity that we, em- we embraced to our good and the glory of God. But after sin in the fall, human relationships, this proper ordering is distorted so that man will exploit his role of leadership to rule and to dominate and to harm either by overt oppression or by the absence even of his leadership in passive neglect, which is a form of uh, passive uh, ruling. The second commission was domination, dominion, excuse me, over the whole earth. He gave the whole earth and all the creatures to us. Well, the curse on the man is pain in work and problems with the ground. And he will even return to the ground before it's over. And these judgments also correspond to the order of creation. We'll notice the serpent came to the woman. We have the creature coming to the woman who gives to the man, but God comes first to the man. And then in his judgments, they work from the creature to the woman, and they climax in a judgment on Adam, our representative head. They're severe judgments. These are, these are fitting and appropriate customized judgments. They're also comprehensive. Our sin on its own has corrupted every dimension of our experience in life and every relationship that we have with God, with one another, and with the ground. And these judgments are God's uh, purposed curses on each of these relationships in order to demonstrate his judgment in the world and to remind us in all of our difficulty of what we in Adam have gotten ourselves into, each experience we have that is the result of this first sin is not necessarily the result of our specific personal sin. But each difficulty that we have in life that comes from within us or is imposed on us from without has its roots in this Moment. There is disorder in our relationship with one another. There is disorder in our relationship with creation. The whole ecology of the universe is off balance. Comets were not supposed to hit the earth. There is a disorder in our relationship with God, characterized now by shame and ending in death. And therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. He drove him out. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. And these judgments are also consistent. That is, they are consistent with our experience of life in this world as human beings in a fallen world, are they not? This may, this ancient passage may have the ring of distance as a a nice old way of explaining what happened with the world. But is it not actually resonant with our actual experience of shame and of hiding and of brokenness in marriages and in the abuse of women and children by men and in the prevalence of divorce as a result of the gross sin and offense that we have with one another, of our difficulty with the ground, is this not actually an explanation that is consistent with our experience of life in the world? This is how we got here. But how did we get here? How did we get here in this room? How did we... How did we get here this morning singing about a wonderful, merciful Savior, a precious Redeemer, and a friend? How did we get here this morning praying, led by our brother, to the triune God, who in his infinite, eternal love overflowed in the creation of his universe, in particular us? And praising him for the lavish blessing that is ours. How did that happen? How did Donna Kepler die not so long ago with hope, famous hope? They had hope. And we are here because God's judgment is not the end of the story. Look with me in verse 15. I will put enmity between you and the woman. In between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Well, if we weren't listening carefully, we might have, we might have missed this. It's cryptic, but we know a few things. We know that the woman will have children, she will die, that she will have children. We know that there will be conflict between her children and the, the children of the serpent. And that, what that means will be complain as the Bible unfolds. We know that one of her children, one from a line of her children, will be wounded, will be bruised. But he will win and he will crush this ancient serpent under his foot. Well, that's good news. We can call this third a blessing in disguise, a promise of blessing, a return to how things ought to be, hidden in a curse on the serpent. I've wondered at times why God didn't just say this to Adam. Well, maybe it's because his plans for salvation are larger than us. Pertain to his righteousness and his rule, which envelope us in salvation, Adam must have heard it, for he called his wife Mother of the living, gave her the name Eve, and now you have heard it. So friends, let us come out of hiding. let us come out of hiding. Let us come out of hiding and confess our sin it's not hard to find ourselves in this story. Sometimes we have to ask, well, where are we in the story? Uh, we're right there. <laughs> we're, the one, we're the ones eating. We're in Adam. John MacArthur has recently said that today sin is called sickness. So people think it requires therapy, not repentance. No. No, our problem goes back to, to sin And there are ways that sin has affected our mind and our lives and our heart. But at the end of the day, we participate in everything that's wrong with us. For we are born of Adam. And if you've never come clean, if you've never come out of hiding and called your sin for what it is. If you've been blowing smoke into the room in your marriage and in your relationship with God. From your earliest years, now's the time to clear that away and to call it what it is. Not the woman you gave me, not she gave it to me, only I ate. Now's the time to call it for what it is, for God knows all and he sees all and he will judge all. The sound of his footsteps cannot be ignored forever. He will enter the room. So let us come out of hiding and confess our sins, for that is right. But thankfully, we can come out of hiding without the fear of judgment today. That judgment is our true problem, by the way, not the serpent. The serpent is not our true problem. It's not our ultimate problem. If the serpent was our ultimate problem, he could be killed. No, we are banished from the presence of God. We're sent out from the garden. We live east of Eden, and there's no way back on our own. And yet we can come out of hiding without fear of judgment because of the one who delighted in and who kept And who knew to a word, the word of God. He is the only way back. The son of the woman is the only way back. So let us come out of hiding because we are with the one. And if you have not joined yourself to the one, come out of hiding to join yourself to the one who came out of heaven to take your judgment. To Jesus who in the fullness of time was born of a woman. To Jesus, who in his own temptation did not revise the word of God, but kept it every point. Who did not overlook God's generosity, but clung to it. To Jesus, who in another garden prayed, not my will, but yours be done as we slept. Who was obedient to the point of death on a cross where we put him. Who did not experience any softened version of God's judgment for us, but the whole sure judgment. To Jesus, who will reign until he has put every enemy under his feet. And to Jesus, who will say to us, if we're with him, take and eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Revelation 2.7. There is only one way from where we are to where we want to be. To utopia. There is only one way out of this mess and he is that way and truth and life so let us come out of hiding and confess our sin let us come out of hiding without fear of judgment for in coming out of hiding we can be without fear of judgment if we join ourselves to the one who took it and let us come out of hiding christians and take god at his word let us be the ones that confess our sins straightforwardly and let us be the ones who take God at his words. For he saves us more from, than from the penalty of sin. He saves us more than one day from the very presence of sin, but from the very power of sin right now. And one of the purposes of this story as we watch, as we watch so terrifyingly ourselves on display in Adam and Eve's descent And as we see straightforwardly the consequences of our sin, its immediate effects, and its long-term effects, we are to be taught about the nature of sin, for sin is crouching at the door waiting to devour. It is deceitful, and it emerges from within our own heart. So let us, friends, read the Bible, its words. Let us study its words. Let us receive its words. Let us memorize its words. I thank God for a sister this morning who said to me, our family prays regularly throughout the day, little prayers. And we memorize the Psalms. That's so appropriate. Read the word. Give the word to your kids. And when we're confronted with a suggestion, we won't be swept at the knee. And revise the word of God. And friends, as we come out of hiding into the light of the word and the knowledge of God. As we confess our sins straightforwardly and say, we have eaten, I have eaten, the judgment is on me. Yet I cast myself on Christ who took my judgment. We come out of hiding and we come into the blessing of God. For the God who made the world is determined to bless you. And he did not have to embed this promise in his story. The Bible could end at Genesis chapter 3. But he has given this to us so that we might know his purpose for salvation for you and for me. So let us take, a, let, let us take him up on it and let us pray and then let us sing. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for this word that follows on such glorious words of Of blessing and of fullness. And now we thank you for this honest word that frankly describes our own experience a little more truly. For while the earth is filled with beauty and color and tastes and sights and gifts, we know in our hearts. We are not thankful as we ought to be, but we have exchanged the glory of God for the creature. And you have given us over to our sin. And so as we read this, Father, this morning, and as we ponder this, we confess that it is true. And we confess that it is true that there is a promise here for us. You sent us out of the garden, but you clothed us first, And Eve's name was named Mother of the Living, and there is life, and it has come in her Son, Jesus Christ, in whom we trust and in whose name we pray. Amen.